If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, I turn with me uh, to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we'll be picking up in verse 32. Acts chapter 9 really serves as a hinge or a turning point in the book of Acts, a, a, a transition. And as often happens in salvation history, when, when there is a, a change or a transition, uh, miracles happen. The Lord was going to bring his people out of Egyptian captivity. He did it with signs and wonders, uh, bringing plagues upon Egypt. When Jesus was going to usher in the new covenant through his death and resurrection, his ministry was marked by signs and wonders that bore witness to the fact that he had been sent by God. The author of Hebrews tells us uh, that uh, the purpose of the miracles was that they would bear witness to the fact uh, that God was indeed working. Chapter 2, verse 4, the author of Hebrews says that God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And we see that here in chapter 9, verse 32. Luke writes, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Shara saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows... All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turned to the body and said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand, she, he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, as we turn our attention to this passage, I pray that you give us understanding as uh, to uh, what you are doing, uh, both uh, in the days of your apostles and in our own day. We pray that if there are any here this morning who have not found the salvation that is found in Christ, that they would experience the greatest miracle of all, a new birth, that they would be born again so that they would be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. pray that we would draw great comfort knowing uh, that in your will and your word uh, there are no little people and no little places that are beyond your notice. We thank you for this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
So as we turn our attention uh, where we are in the narrative, uh, if we remember when Saul took part in the execution of Stephen, uh, many of the saints scattered, but the apostles had remained in Jerusalem. And so at this time, uh, you have many small struggling churches uh, popping up uh, that are started by those who had fled the persecution in Jerusalem. But that persecution, because of Paul's conversion, Uh, has calmed down. We were told in verse 31 that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And so with that peace, the apostles, particular Peter, uh, are enabled to go to these small and struggling congregations uh, who are at the fringe of Judaism. Lydda and Joppa that we find addressed here were not primary locations. If you're looking for Jews, uh, they were probably one of the last places you looked. They were not central places uh, for Jews in Judaism. And for the church, uh, they were the outliers of their influence as the gospel is slowly expanding outside of Judea and Samaria. We are confronted with Peter's humility here. You you have a church of thousands in Jerusalem, and yet Peter is willing to leave the thousands to go uh, here and there among these struggling groups of believers to bring encouragement to them. Very different mindset in our own day and age. In our own day and age, we find the attitude where bigger is better, and if it's not on the radar, it's not worth going to. Francis Schaeffer, in his spiritual classic, No Little People, No Little Places, said this of his day and age. He said, nowhere more than America are Christians caught in the 20th century syndrome of size. Size will show success. And consecrated, there will be necessarily be large quantities of people, dollars, etc. This is not so. Not only does God not say that size and spiritual power go together, but he even reverses this, especially in the teaching of Jesus, and tells us to be deliberately careful not to choose a place too big for us. And here you have Peter leaving the big place of Jerusalem in regards to Judaism and the church, and as they're trying to reach their fellow Jews, and he goes to a primarily Gentile city. He goes here and there among them all, and he comes to the saints who live at Lydda. And there he finds a a man who had been bedridden for eight years, a paralyzed man, a, a Isn't it amazing how the disciples are always able to find those people that society would least likely to have their eyes on? We know that's so because it's true in our day and age. You know, we know that there are homeless people here in Harrodsburg, and they just kind of blend in with the scenery. This man, Aeneas, is... Somebody who has been paralyzed for eight years, bedridden, he would have just blended in with the scenery. And yet the disciples, nobody was part of the scenery for them. Those that often demanded the least attention received the most attention. Like the beggar at the gate called Beautiful uh, when they went into Jerusalem. 
Peter and John called that man to them, telling them that uh, silver and gold they did not have, but in the name of Jesus, get up and rise. So this brings us to our, our second issue. We've been confronted with Peter's humility, which is a stark contrast with our day and age. But we are also confronted with another stark contrast with our day and age. There are individuals that style themselves as miracle workers that think that in and of themselves they have the power and ability to perform miracles. We don't see that in Peter. We don't see Peter pop up his big tent and tell everyone to come on down. I'm reminded of uh, the episode of Little House on the Prairie when the miracle worker comes to town and uh, they quickly find out that the miracle worker goes town to town healing the same people over and over again just to draw a crowd. You know, some of the televangelists of our day and age, uh, they draw a crowd and they tell people if they want to be healed by them, uh, they've got to make a donation. Not so with Peter. Peter uh, notices this man who has been paralyzed for eight years. So this is not a passing illness. And Peter tells this man, he doesn't tell this man, uh, I am going to heal you. He's not saying, if you have enough faith in me, if you're willing to pay me, I will hear, heal you. you. Remember what Luke began with Acts. He says that, that he had written of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. If you remember our first sermon in Acts, I told you that Luke's emphasis is that Jesus is the one acting. Jesus works through his church. We do nothing apart from him. If you remember in the parable of the vine dresser in John 15, Jesus told his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so Peter, who has been in the school of humility, who, who has learned how little he is in and of himself. Tells Aeneas, not that Peter heals them, but Jesus Christ heals you. That brings us uh, to a, a, a stark contrast with our day and age. There are individuals that claim uh, that they're the ones that do the healing. Jesus is the one in the healing business. This also begs another question. Is it God's will always to heal? Everyone, we're confronted with this because we have two miracles back to back. A paralyzed man and a dead woman who are recipients of remarkable healings. And there are some in our day and age that would argue that it is always God's will to heal, well, if that was our position, we'd have a problem. Because there was a dead man just a few chapters before who was full of faith, so he couldn't say that he didn't have enough faith, who was given a vision of Christ standing in heaven, and yet Stephen stayed dead. Luke, uh, throughout Acts, uh, while there are shorter recordings of others, he only records primarily ten miracles. Luke's focus isn't primarily on miracles. Miracles, by definition, are rare. We often get this impression that there was no sickness or disease after Jesus passed through a village. And yet the fact of the matter is there were more people who didn't receive miracles than did. 
Lewis, C.S. Lewis, in his work on miracles, describes them as a, a great reversals, where we're given a, a sign of what is going to fully, finally be done when Christ comes again. They're kind of a preview. And uh, as we saw in Hebrews, uh, one of the primary purposes of the miracles that the apostles did was to bear witness. God was bearing witness. They weren't bearing witness. God was bearing witness through these signs and wonders, the truthfulness of what they were proclaiming about Christ. The works of God were bearing witness. And so we see that very same thing here. Peter tells this man that Jesus heals him to rise and make his bed, tidy his bed, and immediately Aeneas does so. He rises. And everyone in town, the residents of Lydda and Sharon, saw him. You know, the scenery has changed. This guy who's been part of the scenery just got up. What's going on here? They saw him, and they turned not to Peter. They didn't worship Peter. They turned to the Lord. Yeah, this is the only paralyzed man in the community that is singled out for this special blessing. Now, we have to think of this. Ultimately, at the end of the day, God will heal. Might not be here and now. Ultimately, as we're going to see, Peter resuscitates Tabitha who had died. Ultimately, God's will is to restore life, but it might not be at this point in salvation history. And we know that for a fact because you know what happened to Tabitha after she was raised from the dead eventually? She died again. You know what, how we know that? Because she's not alive right now. Think of Lazarus in the book of John. Jesus raised him four days after he had been buried when they thought he was far gone because the Jews believed that after three days the spirit departed to Abraham's bosom and then no resuscitation was possible. Lazarus died. You know how we know that? Because he's not around. If Lazarus were around, people would notice so first, we have to remember, when we hear people claiming that they, they are doing miracles, they are performing miracles, that there is something fishy there because the apostles never claimed to have this power in and of themselves. They understood that it was God working through them, that it was Christ working through them. And we have to understand that these miracles are not appointing what our life here on earth is to be. Our life here on earth isn't that every illness, every ache, and every heartache is corrected here and now. We understand that in light of the future ministry of the disciples. You know, Paul, who also performed healings, had his son in the faith who had stomach ailments. And Paul doesn't tell Timothy, hey, Timothy, come here so I can heal your stomach ailment illnesses. He tells him to uh, drink some wine with his water because of his stomach ailments. Paul didn't even heal himself. You know, Paul was uh, sent, had to go to Galatia because of an ailment with his eyes. Paul never healed himself. So we see that Peter shows a, a great deal of humility. He comes to this man who has been paralyzed eight years, and Christ heals this man, and the surrounding region turns 
to Christ. And while Peter is here at this outlier of the Jewish community, word comes that he's there, and we see another person who seems insignificant. Verse 36, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which means Dorcas. That's a name you don't hear too often. I have known some Dorcases, but I, I think that one's fallen out of the baby book, which also means gazelle. And Luke tells us this of this woman. She, she, she doesn't have a title before her. She's not an apostle. She's not a deacon. She's not one of the seven. She's a disciple. She's an ordinary disciple. But he says she was full of good works and acts of charity. This was a woman who had devoted her life to helping others. And we're told in verse 37, In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the disciples. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So here you have this woman who, who is uh, living out the spirit of Christ. We have to remember there's no major discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. James tells us that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God the Father is to care for widows and orphans in their affliction. And here there is a... There is a woman living that out. Her, her life, however long she has been in Christ, has been marked by uh, generosity, charity, doing good works for others. She has lived such a life that with her death, uh, no one can imagine how life is going to get on without her. And they're hopeful. They're hopeful that maybe they'll be able to see her again in this life. And so they begged Peter to come and to do something. And so Peter sends them all outside, and he kneels and prays, and he turns to the body, and he says, Tabitha, arise. Peter is walking in the same path as Christ. Remember, Luke tells us that there was a little girl, not an old woman, there was a little girl who had died, and Jesus had told her, Talitha, kume, little girl, arise. In fact, uh, some uh, uh, Bible scribes uh, uh, tried to uh, change Talitha into Tabitha, trying to make him into the same person, but they weren't. Here, uh, Jesus, through Peter, is causing Tabitha, Dorcas, to arise. So she opens her eyes, and she sees Peter, and she sits up. And he gives her his hand and raises her up. They see her alive. Again, this leads to the question, is this normative for what we can expect? Should we expect every time someone dies, they're supposed to get raised from the dead here and now in this lifetime? We have to understand what's going on here. This is not a resurrection. This is a resuscitation. Life has come back to her, but she's going to die again. This is a gracious gift of God. God has restored life to this woman, not for her sake. You know, I've been thinking about that recently. Could you imagine how disappointed you would be if you were Tabitha? You've departed to be with Christ, and then you wake up and you find yourself, oh, 
oh, I'm back. You remember the Apostle Paul told the church uh, in Philippians that, that he desired to be with Christ, which is far better. So there she was with Christ, and yet she's been sent back uh, to continue to encourage her brothers and sisters in Christ. She's presented to them alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Again, uh, they're not flocking after Peter. They're not believing in Peter. They understand who is at work. They understand that Jesus Christ is living and active. And again, this is not the heart of Judaism. This is Gentile territory. So those, the coastlands, if you read through Isaiah, uh, there's this constant reference, uh, light dawning upon the coastlands. Here, uh, the coastal city of Joppa, the very city that Jonah tried to run away from the Lord, the light is breaking in. And Peter finds himself at the home of Simon a Tanner, somebody who had been considered unclean. We find uh, the Lord, as we'll see next week, the Lord is preparing for something big. They had been told, in Acts 1-8, you'll be what my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And now, at, at the coastlands, the gospel's going to start going to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's going to start going to the Gentiles. It's going to start going to those that the Jewish people considered beyond their notice, not worthy of their notice. All because Peter finds himself where he is. Some commentators argue that one of the reasons for these miracles is not simply for the surrounding people. It's for Peter's sake as well. Because Peter, as we'll see in the next chapter, he has to get outside his comfort zone. He's going to have to reach out intentionally to the Gentiles. And it's hard for us to imagine in our day and age where so much of the church is Gentile, but that there was, as Paul would say to the church of Ephesus, there was a wall of division between the Jews and the Gentiles. See, these miracles, in part, were telling Peter, reminding Peter that he was where God needed him to be that he was doing the work that God needed him to do. That way, when he's going to be asked something hard, as he will be in chapter 10, he's knowing that he's walking in the path that God set for him. So we think about this. We think about these miracles. Can God work miracle in our day and age? Yes. There are individuals that we pray for miracles for. This should lead us to be very wary of so many who call themselves miracle workers in our day and age. You know, if somebody uh, has a price tag for their miracles, run away. Because that's not what Peter's doing here. Peter doesn't have to take up an offering before the Holy Spirit can work, before Jesus can work. Secondly, uh, this hits upon an issue that's touching in our day and age. We think of Tabitha. We live in a day and age where it, it, there's argument in Southern Baptist life. We're Southern Baptist. There's an argument in our day and age at the level of the convention. And it's going to be an issue this summer. I don't know if you follow what goes on in Southern Baptist life, uh, but earlier this year, the Committee on Credentials voted to disfellowship uh, a few different churches, uh, 
one of the most uh, recognized of them, a Saddleback Church uh, in California, uh, because th they had recently ordained and installed female pastors, uh, another one uh, 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 in Louisville, uh, had a female pastor for almost 30 years now. And one of the arguments being made is that if an individual cannot be a pastor, they cannot be fully engaged in the Great Commission. Somehow that there's this clericalism that's snuck into Baptist life where we think that the work of the Great Commission is reserved for those who are ordained and who have a title in front of their name. And yet we're confronted here with this woman we're told that Tabitha, she's not a pastor, she's not an elder, she's not an apostle, she's a disciple. And yet she is doing good work. She is having a part in the Great Commission. Recently I saw that Rick Warren was going to challenge their church's removal because he was arguing that not allowing women to serve as pastors removes them from the opportunity of fulfilling the Great Commission. I tell you right now, if you are a believer in Christ and a disciple of Christ, the Great Commission is upon you just as it is me. It's on, if you, this is true whether you have a position in the church or not, whether you're pastor or deacon or Sunday school teacher. The Great Commission is given to you. You have a responsibility of being a disciple who makes disciples. You have the responsibility and command from Christ to walk in good works. I think the problem is that in our uh, contemporary Christianity, uh, we allow so much nominalism with the exception of those that are going to have a title or an office, or a position in the church. We're happy to give the name of a disciple to someone where there is no actual discipleship. To be a disciple means to actively follow after Christ and obedience to Christ. And here you have Tabitha. She's not speaking at conferences. She's not writing any books. And yet she has a powerful ministry in Joppa such that... The church is willing to go out of their way to try to get her back. She was full of good works and acts of charity in those days. She became ill and died. We think of the issues that face our day and age. You know, the argument is uh, that Rick Warren said he was going to object because of the millions of Southern Baptist women. Well, I tell you, whether you're a man or a woman, there is much ministry you can do apart from having a title. You know, there is ministry done in this church that is not done by me, that's not done by our deacons. It's done by the ordinary disciples in our church. And I would encourage you, in light of what Luke's telling us here, never get it in your head that you are somehow lesser or your contribution to the church and the kingdom of Christ is somehow less valued because you don't have a title. 
I would say that anyone need, who feels they need a title to do ministry has completely lost the New Testament nature of ministry. Tabitha didn't need a title. She had a heart overflowing with good works and acts of charity. Lastly, we, we understand that in God's economy... You know, we try to measure people. We try to, you know, how many people follow this person, how influential they are. When we think of authors, we think, how many books do they sell? In Southern Baptist life, which is surprising given the fact that 70, over 70% 70 of our churches are 100 in membership, you only hear about the ones that are in the thousands. Because we've fallen into this mentality of thinking that bigger is better. That somehow you have to be in the limelight. You have to be super influential to be important. And yet we're reminded here that under the guidance of God, the providence of God, Peter is not going to the important decision makers of the day. He's going to the paralytics. He's going to the old ladies who are marked with lives of charity. And it's to such belong the kingdom of God. And again, this defies expectation. Peter's having to get outside his comfort zone. When persecution came and everyone scattered, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. It would have been very easy for Peter to think, well, there's so many of my Jewish brethren who don't know Christ, and Jerusalem is such an important city, and we have the temple here. Well, why would I want to go to the outskirts of Jewish territory? And yet he did, fulfilling what Christ had told him. He had been told by Christ uh, that he would be sifted and after he had been restored that he was to strengthen the brethren. And so uh, he understands that strengthening the brethren means going to those weak and isolated places to bring them comfort and encouragement. And so as we think of this, we understand because of who our God is, there are no little people, there are no little places. You know, sometimes we think of our ability to be a witness for Christ is contingent upon our visibility and what others think of us. Well, the fact of the matter is the gospel message that we bring isn't contingent upon us. You know, sometimes we think, you know, I'm just a little nobody. I, I, I'm not anything important. So why should anyone listen to me share the gospel? Well, the fact of the matter is, just as Peter did not work in his own name, but Christ worked through him, when we bring the gospel, we don't bring it under our authority. It's not our opinion. It's not our authority that makes credible. It is Christ making his appeal through us, as the Apostle Paul would say to the church of Corinth, Christ making his appeal through us to be reconciled to God. So let us not think that uh, just because we don't have a, a thousand people following us on social media and because we don't have ticker tape parades for us, that somehow we're not going to be able to be a kingdom influence where we are. Because in the economy of God, there are no little people. There are no little places. To close with a story, uh, one of the greatest 
preachers in the history of the church uh, was saved through a ministry of what many would call a little church. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one January morning, uh, was going to church, uh, but because of uh, feet of snow, he wasn't able to go to the church he'd normally frequented, uh, so he ended up going to what was called the Artillery Street Primitive Methodist Chapel. And because of the snow, their usual pastor was wasn't able to preach, so a gentleman in the church with no education or not, no training ha had to fill in that morning, and his message out of the book of Isaiah was, Look unto me, all nations, and be saved. And the man, uh, you know, a small church, you know when there are new people in the crowd, the man singled out Spurgeon, uh, telling him he was miserable and that he needed to look upon Christ and be saved. Spurgeon had been wrestling with conviction of sin, wondering how he could come to a saving relationship with Christ. And there, at that chapel, that Methodist chapel, with, as he would say, that uneducated man uh, preaching the simple message of look unto Christ, be saved, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was saved. Spurgeon was is still one of the greatest influences in Baptist life. Started, pastored uh, West, uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church, uh, one of the first megachurches of the day, wrote more words in the English language than you and I could ever read in a lifetime, raised up pastors, raised up missionaries, started a pastor's college, started an orphanage, all because of the ministry of what many would deem was a small, unimportant church by small, unimportant people. But there are no small churches, there are no unimportant people, because if we are serving God and we are doing for Christ, then everything that we do for Christ has eternal importance. And as we come to a close, I, I tell you, if you are outside of Christ and you die outside of Christ, if your faith is not Christ, then when you die, everything that you have done will be for nothing but your eternal condemnation. You want to have a life of meaning and significance, we're told that this one life soon shall pass, and only what is done for Christ will last. And you can only do for Christ if you are in Christ. So as we come to this time of invitation, I invite you, search your heart. Are you in Christ right now? And for those who are believers who are in Christ, are you doing for yourself or are you doing for Christ? You know, in Christ, in the kingdom of God, there are no insignificant people or places. There are no insignificant things. Jesus tells us uh, that uh, if we give a glass of cold water to a little one, we will not lose our rewards. Something so seemingly small is filled with value in the sight of the one that we will give an account. But we're told elsewhere that if we build for ourselves, it'll pass away. Peter's not building an empire for himself. He's not building his name. He's pointing others to Christ. That's the greatest thing any of us could do. Pray that the Spirit would search your heart, whether you are building your life upon yourself or building upon Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy.
we thank you that you are a living and active God. We thank you that even today you are capable and you do miracles. And so we pray that we would point others to you. That that we would seek to make you known. We pray that if there are any who are outside of Christ, that you would open their eyes for their need for him. Because we are reminded through your word that it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. One day all our works will be tested by fire. And if our lives are not built upon the foundation of Christ, there will only be the fearful expectation of judgment. So I pray that if there are any who are not on the foundation of Christ, that they would come to him today. For those of us who are believers, I pray that we will have lived our lives in such a way that we have sought your glory and your honor. And where we have not, we pray that you would grant repentance. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.